0: Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, October 14th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, We are closing our November 75th anniversary issue tomorrow. We'll have some stuff online Uh, Friday and over the weekend and uh, next week, and there's a lot of good stuff there. So please be on the watch at CommentaryMagazine.com where we give you a few free reads and then ask you to subscribe. Noah Rothman, you have watched roughly 2,911 hours of the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. The most interesting piece of data that I've seen, the only real piece of data that I've seen about this, uh, comes from a Politico morning consult poll this morning that says that um, uh, Democrats appear to be shifting in her direction. Uh, 48% of Americans now say that she should be confirmed, and Democrats have moved in her direction by 13 or 14 points over the course of the hearing. So um, what do you make of it?
1: Well, we've been seeing that movement over the course of the last couple of weeks, even before um the confirmation hearings began. So it's interesting to see that trajectory continue along that same path. Um, I think it's probably uh, reinforced. That movement is reinforced by what I've watched in these hearings. So again, when you watch, you know, whatever it was, probably close to 20 hours of testimony, it all sort of bleeds together. So I can't really tell you if there was a moment, one moment or another moment. what the general sense that I got from watching these things is that it was it's. It has generally been a really glorious and boring um, exploration of policy and judicial philosophy. What we've been focusing on primarily among Democrats has been, and they've been broadcasting and advertising this for a long time, that they were going to focus on this upcoming uh, challenge to the Affordable Care Act, and they've been talking a lot about Obamacare. And to the extent that there's been demagoguery and uh, you know appeals to empathy over and above the questions of law here. You know, you've got a lot of that. But there was also a ton of talk about uh, jurisprudential um, philosophy. What is originalism? What is textualism? Um, how uh, how that con- conflicts with a preferred democratic understanding of judicial philosophy, which should take into account disparate impact and the effect of law and the and congressional intent. And all that stuff is really fascinating if you like Politics as we understood it to be in the before time, but that's not how politics, not what politics is anymore. Um, The activist wing uh, on the Democratic left doesn't get out of bed in the morning for the ACA and judicial philosophy. They are animated exclusively by identity grievances, and you're beginning to see the the beginnings of another whisper campaign against Amy Coney Barrett to try to generate the kind of traction and enthusiasm and engagement that they got out of the Kavanaugh hearings, where the lowest possible denominator, the, the the bar to entry into the conversation is only as low as your identity, what your accidents of birth are. And that's what they need to get. And they tried to do it, um, the, the, some more unscrupulous types up to and including Ibrahim X. Kennedy, Kennedy, rather, of uh, the notion that uh, just Judge Barrett is, has some racial antipathy to her because she has two uh, adopted black children and she had therefore colonized them somehow. That landed flat in part because it is insane. Um, so at least we have some semblance of sanity left in the, in the national conversation. But so we're moving on to another identity grievance in an effort to brand Judge Barrett as a homophobe. And I guarantee you that this is going to be the remainder of the Democratic opposition to her candidacy. It started as a whisper campaign um, among journalists and reporters, uh, people like Kyle Griffin at MSNBC and Yamiche Alcindor at PBS, who said that her use of the phrase sexual preference as opposed to sexual orientation was reflective of some... uh, anti deluvian understanding of what uh, of uh, what proper etiquette is when, t- when talking about uh, the LGBTQ community. And it made its way up into the mouth of Maisie Hirono yesterday, senator from Hawaii, who was on the, on the bench, uh, or, or uh, rather on the dais questioning the judge, and, and basically fished for an apology for her for, for using this phrase, uh, to which uh, she said, um, Judge Barrett said, Yeah, I didn't mean to offend anybody, but there's obviously contextually there was no attempt at animus here. And that should have been the end of it, but it's not going to be the end of it because you saw institutions like Webster's Dictionary now revise its definition of this phrase to include... Uh, a note that it is offensive. We are retroactively conditioning people here to believe that this has always and forever been an, an, uh, a phrase that was something you should avoid, up to mm-hmm. and including style guidelines from AP and New York Times, which, according to GLAD, apparently wanted this term removed from public discourse. But neither AP nor New York Times abided by that, apparently, because they've been using mm-hmm. this phrase pretty frequently well after 2013 into 2015, 2016, 2017, and all in a context that is non-discriminatory and not a hurtful context, but we're in okay, a now. context now.
0: Right. Okay. So what you're saying is that for Kyle Griffin and Yamiche Alcindor and Mark Joseph Stern at Slate and all of that, the dogma lives deeply within them. <sighs>
2: No, but this is a way they, they tried and failed to get at her Catholicism by talking about the handmade thing, right? But her very uh, success as a, as a, a law professor and, and a judge disproved the lie that she's some sort of, you know, uh, handmaid to her husband or to her, the, the male religious leaders in, in her, the organization she was part of. So that, that failed. Um, so now I think the, 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 concert the the faux outrage about her use of the word preference rather than orientation is a way to try to get back at the Catholicism point to drive that home. There, it, nothing is sticking to her because she's such an accomplished and um, judiciously temperamental human being. We see this the more you watch her. The more um, two things emerge for me from I didn't watch anywhere near as much as Noah. Bless you, Noah, for doing this, doing God's work for the rest of us. But the one thing I was really struck by was the fact that all these uh, Democratic arguments that they we can't rush this hearing are ridiculous because most of what they do during those hearings is bloviate. And, and, you know, that's fine. And but they would rather have weeks and months to do that, I guess. And now they have a, a very limited time frame that limited time frame serves the american people it does not serve the Im- the vanity the vanity and the impulses of the senators but i do think that it that has been disproven we're getting a lot of substance out of in very short time even with their pontifications
1: so briefly, just one thing that I have to note, um, because I watched so much of this stuff is, is the faux outrage is not limited to the Democrats here. Republicans repeatedly made the point that Democrats have been on the offense about her faith, about her associations based on her faith. They are not. They are explicitly avoiding that. Now, maybe there was an effort on the part of uh, uh, activists to, to get Democrats to adopt that position, but they are allergic to it. They're doing their utmost best to avoid the appearance and the impression that are, they're going after her faith. And Republicans are suggesting that they are when they are not. It is duplicitous, in my view. Uh, and, and it's something that, that you know, just as uh, just in the interest of fairness, we should be clear that I have not seen that. And any allegations that they are doing
0: that is a contrivance. Okay, so in my hours of watching, which of course don't equal Noah's, uh, Democrats had two modes. One was to, you know, give speeches uh, about healthcare and the unfairness of the process and all of this, while she sat there and did not do the Kamala Harris. She didn't make faces. She didn't roll her eyes. She was very still and placid, and it was kind of a, an impressive display of self-control because I don't know how I would have handled it in her circumstances. And the other was to ask her direct questions that she then would answer directly. Like they said, the president wants you to rule on the Obamacare case that will come up a week after the election. He wants you to rule a certain way. And she she said flatly in response five or six different times. No one at the White House asked me about any specific case. And if they had done so, I would have said, I cannot say a word about that. It is pending before the court. And the judicial independence, the independence of the judiciary requires me not to answer that question. So where do they go from there? Either they can say, well, obviously you're lying. Without question, the White House asked you this question and you answered it so you could get this job on the court, which they didn't have the nerve to do, but which effectively they have said in previous hearings, I mean, somebody pretty got pretty close to saying outright that Brett Kavanaugh was lying when he said he hadn't discussed specific cases with the Trump White House. But her own mien and demeanor and behavior makes that made that very difficult for them to go at her. But her but that was what she was direct about. And so either they have to go to DEFCON one and say, you're lying. I can't vote for you because I do not believe what you were saying. Uh, and then the other was about how Trump needs you there to rule for him on the election. And then she said, "I can't even talk about this <clears throat> because it really may come before the court next month." Nobody asked me about any specific case or how I would r- rule on any specific matter, but I can't talk about any. I can't talk about anything else. Which is then used to say, "Well, you see, she wouldn't answer the question directly because obviously she's going to rule in favor of Trump." The oddity of the Obamacare case, and uh, you know, there are so many different, there have been so many different challenges and everything else uh, to Obamacare that it's a, it's, it's. Um, I, I don't really entirely understand what's going on in this case, but from my conservative friends. David French, Adam White, Ramesh Panuro, others. Uh, this is apparently a lousy case that the White that, that people on the right do not expect to win. That it's a dumb case, according to according to David French. It's a dumb case. The White House shouldn't have aligned itself with it because it's probably going to lose. But even if she recused herself, if, as they are demanding, she would announce that she would recuse herself in this case. And there were a party line rendering, which of course they're basically saying there won't, that the conservative justices will probably, or at least a couple of them will probably vote against it. Uh, that if there were such a case, it would end up four to four and the case would be rejected. And, there, and, and the earlier ruling that is being appealed, uh, which is sort of in the direction of Obamacare, would stand. So this entire proceeding, of demanding that she recuse herself in this case, effectively would lead to, according to their own theory of the way that everybody votes according to their partisan interests and who appointed them, would lead to the case being rejected anyway. So what the hell is going on here? It doesn't make any sense. And so that's one of the reasons they haven't landed a blow on her, in the course of these proceedings, because she's answering the questions that she can answer directly, she's being badgered by them and looking very placid in response. <laughs> and now we have this semantic war on her, and this idea that by using the phrase "sexual preference," which, as we know, Joe Biden used just a couple of months ago, she is committing a thought crime uh, and an, you know, in a form of you know, I don't know what you would call it, heteronormative <laughs> supremacy.
1: A premeditated thought crime. And there's there's no allowance for con, for context here or even ignorance. It is it is an a, 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 an offense. Maybe there's some allowance for ignorance, I should say, but that ignorance is itself an indictment because you should be aware of these sort of things. So we, she's done the R B G act by saying, you know, I can't answer that when it comes to a pending case, which is which is smart and allowable. But that's she's not also the done that R B G act. It's,
0: yeah, every I mean, that, that's, well, everybody, yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but she's also done this for, for politics whenever a political issue comes up, which she's defined rather expansively. And that's something that Democrats are, are very frustrated by as well, particularly when it comes to the president's sort of ambiguity about his peaceful transition of power comments that she said is a political issue and she will not weigh into it. Now, the Democratic commentary around this and the liberal progressive commentary is, is that really a, a political issue? Not really, right? I mean, that's so foundational that it can't be considered just mere politics. But of course it is. Because we're not talking about the structure of the Constitution, which defines the president's term very explicitly, and that it has an end date, and when it ends, a series of mechanisms kick in. So we're talking about um, if this if this were to come to a head and a real conflict, it very well could come before the court, but it would be related to the mechanisms of the Constitution that provide for the, the transition of power from one presidential term to another presidential term. Right. So it's not, a, it's not, it's not, it is politics.
0: Sort of. Look, it's definitely, no, it's, it's definitely politics. Hey, <laughs> uh, did you expect it to go this easily?
3: Well, I remember when we were discussing um, a few weeks back what would happen. And John, you said that they would um, go after her on healthcare stuff because um, in part the... Um, identity or the the identity attack um the sort of the the twitter trial balloon of um uh, uh, painting her as some sort of uh, racist colonialist um had fallen flat and whatnot and I remember saying well that's this is a lot of time to to uh, you're probably right that they will go after her that that they will use the time to discuss Obamacare, but that is a lot of time to discuss Obamacare. Uh, and it has been a lot of time to to discuss Obamacare, and I th- so I think it, it, it I, I think that the die was cast pretty early on that this was going to be um, boring in terms of I don't mean in, no in terms of the ideology and and um, uh, legal theory, but I mean in terms of uh, fireworks and um, uh, uh, p- political warring.
2: Well, well, she's. Yeah, she's yeah. I'm sorry, just the one the one thing that I really uh, I think the poll that shows even Democrats moving towards embracing her uh, is temperamentally, which I think is one of the most important things you should look at when you're assessing whether someone should sit on the bench, particularly the, on a lifetime appointment to Supreme Court. Temperament really matters. It matters as much as judicial philosophy, because this is not just they're not going up there as a solo artist. They're a group of nine. Or 50, if the Democrats have their way. But for now, it's nine. So they her temperament doesn't allow even these, you know, crazy identitarian things to stick because she won't allow it. I mean, she's she's obviously brilliant. Um, the way she's answered these questions deftly and thoughtfully and in, in, with great detail shows that. Um, the fact that some of the the left's usual tactics for attacking a Republican nominee, uh, such as for example the Notre Dame letter, you know from all these people who are professors of romance language and, and anthropology denouncing her not a single, Notre Dame law school faculty member signed that letter. Those are the people she actually worked with for years and who know her the best. Even those tactics, like having people in their own um, uh, past denounce them, haven't stuck. And there's a reason. And I really do go back to the point you made earlier, John. Temperamentally, and I don't, I wouldn't call her placid. I would just call her absolutely unflappable and competent. And that right. is what is sticking in people's minds right. when I watch these hearings.
0: See, I think that the the best line that the Democrats could take in this case And the mistake that they're making, if they're making a mistake, I don't really think this is going to matter one way or the other, is to say she seems like a fine person. She seems even like a good jurist, although I disagree with her philosophy and her approach. But, I mean, she's a serious person and all of that. It's just this process is is unjust, and I can't vote for her because this is a a disgraceful process and it's a hypocrisy and Merrick Garland and all of that. Because then you can sever... <clears throat> her from the nomination but they there's no there's no utility they've done a little bit I mean, i'm saying there's no utility in going at her on on her approach her philosophy her behavior or even the sexual preference nonsense and it is nonsense and i don't care what anybody says it is nonsense and we can go into why it's nonsense but i don't even want to like humor that it's nonsense. Sexual preference was already a euphemism when it was created. And now a euphemism is replayed. It is it is, a euphemism. And then there's another euphemism that is even better or worse, depending on whatever, you, whatever game you're playing, in order to try to get one up on somebody who says something you don't like or you want to like shame uh, in social media or whatever. Um, because where they stand strong, where they stand... I would say in a position where they 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 are arguing where Republicans have very little <clears throat> in the way of an honest defense, or more like a factitious defense, is that it was okay to deny Merrick Garland a hearing or not whatever, but it wasn't okay to uh, you know. But it, but this is okay.
1: Yeah, and, I, I, and I gotta disagree it. though. But the, every every questioner I saw brought that up and dwelled on it for at least a few minutes. And well, you that
0: watched the, an idea that was, that was, it, and I did. I'm just making this up. Then. Well, Let's I'm just
1: it. telling you, they did do that. And, and the reason why they don't dwell on it, in part because this was the entirety of their argument to begin with, that this is egregious Republican hypocrisy, and it is. They invented a standard for themselves in 2016 that didn't exist, only to violate it in 2020. That's a good line, and it's absolutely true, it's irrefutable. But the problem that they can't they can't dwell on it because their argument rests on hypocrisy and hypocrisy is so common in politics it is the water in which they swim it is not something that is so rare
0: as to be egregious so they can't
1: dwell on it it can't be the entirety
0: of their argument but they have to establish the predicate for what they want to do next year that's what, what I'm saying the entirety of the the entirety of what they'll want to do next year the more, more activist of them if they actually mean it which is to seriously take up the idea. Of packing the court, or as they might call it, judicial reform. That's a, that's that talk about. your. It's depoliticizing the court, John. Depoliticizing, de-politicizing the court. That's the acceptable euphemism yeah. now. for court yeah. Or judicial reform. <laughs> uh, they need to keep hammering home the injustice of this nomination and how it has rebalanced the court. And there's been. And that it hasn't been, rebalanced the court, but. Well, they, and,
2: and the, there's been, there actually have been a few, uh, people who've hinted that she's a a a terrible careerist for having accepted the nomination right we've seen this in the chattering classes have tried to make this stick and and be a testament to her character that she accepted this illegitimate nomination which and and calling her a careerist for doing that which is absolutely ridiculous but i do think that's right i don't think the average american looks at a process that's already underway looks at amy coney barrett and thinks this is all just terribly illegitimate unless they're already kind of committed to their activism on one side or the other. I think they just see an extremely competent and accomplished woman whose temperament seems suitable. Who's who's, you know, a woman taking a previous uh, slot previously held by a woman. And they kind of go, wow, what, what's the problem here? And they do see the attacks on her and her family as absolutely repulsive as they should.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, look, the Ibram X. Kendi thing and this whole lot that, that you have, you have the, um, incredible cross purposes the cultural cross purposes of the left and right coming into very very sharp focus here which is that the the general caricature of the left of the right and particularly of religiously minded people on the right is that they are you know uh, reactionary bigots trying to summon uh, you know an old world in place of the new world in which uh, dogma and uh, doctrine and, uh, and injustice uh, rule, and then you get the real image of the religious of, of the religious right, which isn't Jerry Falwell Jr. and it isn't you know what it is Amy Coney Barrett, right? Who is living? If the dogma lives loudly within her, it lives loudly within her private life, where she. Uh abides by her faith uh, and attempts to use her privilege to be of help in the world outside of her own narrow band, which is why she adopted two children uh, from Haiti one in the wake of the you know of the horrible uh, you know, uh, natural disaster there. In, in 2010, and this this complicates every cliche and 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 a caricature that the left wants to paint and believes of the right, and therefore they have to twist themselves into ideological knots to get back to it. So therefore, what she is by taking two children into her home and making them part of her family and be making them. Barrett's is colonizing, which of course, yeah.
2: This is is a really the private public distinction point you just made is really important. I think we forget it. It's actually a point that Noah makes in his book really well too. the left and the identity politics left in particular refuses to even acknowledge um, or respect a distinction between a private world and a public world. You must perform your identity at all times and the performance of that identity must always be consistent. That's why they want to out everyone who they think should be who's who's whose homosexuality might be something they want to keep private. It's why they want to insist that if you speak, it's as a woman, as a, as a trans woman, as a this, as a that. And that is something that the erosion of that public and private distinction is one of the reasons I think our politics has become so toxic and so polarized because we do need a backstage right we need a private life she has clearly she's clearly has a thriving uh, rich private life that involves raising children adopting children being involved in a church community as most Americans do have and I think that again that's part of her appeal and I would say the same thing about it if she was a if she was a, an extreme leftist in terms of her that this distinction it should be respected it's something we've allowed to erode without really thinking about it and it's harmful what that we've done I
0: just want to say one final point make one final point on this this Ibram X. Kendi colonizing point, which is that the analogy itself is preposterous and offensive because the whole point about colonizing is that the, is that the people that you colonize do not become part of you. They are still other. They don't become citizens of your empire. They don't become fully active participants in your circle. They are people that you rule over And that, plunder. plunder and whose resources you exploit. And then maybe if you're really good, you bring them some of the bounty and benefit of the West. Rule of law, you know, sort of like idea advances, technological advances and all of that. That is the opposite of what happens when somebody adopts somebody else. They are bringing them in to integrate them and make them part of their daily lives. And are promising, not only legally, but also to God, that they will see no distinction between those whom they have birthed and those whom they choose to bring into their family. They are equally their children. They, 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 and that is, a, that is a, an act of emotional capaciousness that all of this kind of living your identity Denies all of us, because the idea is that we cannot have true uh, commonality with anybody who is not ourselves. And speaking as somebody who was raised in a family where uh, where a, a stepfather became a father by choice, it is one of the great, you know emotional, heroic things that a person can do. To do that and be that, and it is a it is an it is an act of emotional spiritual generosity, and it should be emulated and celebrated instead of trashed and caricatured.
1: So I'm not going to allow an opportunity to flog my book pass. <clears throat> Thank you, Christine. Um, another point. Und- and-
0: available now at Amazon Books right. a Million. It really Uh, is great. It predicted everything. All the crazy
2: that we're experiencing now, Noah predicted a few years ago, I just have to say.
1: Yeah. Listeners, I just got a royalty check and you're not doing your job. So let's just really (laughs) pound this thing. Um,
0: Is this like you're saying suburban women, will you please like me? Is
1: that what you're saying? Yes, I am. So Podcast listeners, please love
0: me. You saved their damn neighborhood anyway
1: um, go ahead. so as as noble an effort as you made there John I think it is a mistake to engage with this sort of stuff intellectually because it is an anti-intellectual response the reason why we appeal so often to uh, identity politics is because there is no way for these people to engage with judicial philosophy. They don't have the requisite intellectual background. They haven't done the research. They haven't done the homework. There's no way for them to really fully comprehend the legal arguments around the severability of this particular uh, aspect of the ACA. It is far too complex and no one wants to do the research. What you can do is invoke identity and you have eliminated the bar to entry into every political discourse, every political debate and every aspect of political discourse. What's more, you can engage in it authoritatively. Because the arbiters of that discourse will provide you with that authority. If you enter into a debate as an X, you have all already, you have overcome whatever barriers to entry into that conversation that were there before, and you can be taken seriously and you can opine authoritatively, and it's a very valuable way to create engagement in the political process. Okay, so that's, why, will, and it's, that's wanna... why it is dumbed down politics. It's not even... Okay, I want to
0: disagree with you on one thing which is your idea that it's anti-intellectual. It is not. It is intellectual corruption. But as Orwell would have said, some ideas are, you know, what is that? You know, some ideas are so stupid only an intellectual would believe in them. You have to be applying theory rather than life to a situation to say that a a family that adopts two children is, is, is is colonizing. That is that it requires intellectual idiot it, it may be a kind of more it's a kind of moral idiocy but it requires intellectual gymnastics just to get there and intellectualism in this case is is simply a description it's not a I'm not you know it's not something that we should praise because intellect intellectualism can itself be among the worst things the world has ever seen as communism proves
3: Abe, you have anything to add here before I oh no, I was just gonna add. say that but you know it, it's it's even worse in some sense than what Noah describes because you don't have to be an X to comment about the life of an X um th- a- everyone gets in on the game right I mean there's the, you know it's the 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 charge um can be led uh, the charge of racism can be led by by woke white people and in many contexts is. Lead yes, as, and a, as a woman,
2: yeah. as a woman I want, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to woman explain. How are you spelling <laughs> it? With a Y-N. Oh. Uh, but that's a good point, actually. It's one of the things that's constantly pointed out about a lot of the agitation and, and, and activism of the past many months is that, white women those white suburban women and for the listeners who don't know what what john was making a joke about president trump yesterday was begging suburban white women to like him like a like a like a an abusive ex-boyfriend who wants back into the into the fold but is just can't bring himself to to keep the act going he's like come on come on i saved your neighborhoods <laughs> don't please, please or, or me. like
0: or like somebody who um you know uh somebody that you had a bad employment relationship with in some way or other and then they need a job recommendation so they're like <laughs> remember all the good stuff i did for you please like like they're going to call you and ask for a reference like could you just be nice about it yeah that was it. so that's not even a that's like that's it's it's uh it's desperation i don't know if there was anything point, i don't even though. know if it, what
1: one of the things that you haven't heard um from the the you know usual suspects is any accusation of mansplaining no one, ha- no one has had the slightest problem with the lectures to which Amy Coney Barrett has been privy from people like Dick Durbin and uh, Cory Booker, uh, who have been very condescending at, at times. But um, that's, that's okay, I guess, because they have yeah. the pro- their hearts in the right place. Yeah.
0: So our friend, uh, our friend Randy, speaking of um, one of those uh, occasions, which was Sheldon Whitehouse, the senator from Rhode Island, who spent 30 minutes... Basically yelling at Barrett and not letting her answer anything, and going through this whole org chart of the evil uh, that is basically conservative legal intellection uh, and teaching, and apparently you because there are connections on a chart like you know like Carrie has on her wall in Homeland with strings between things. This, of course, is very nefarious. Um, and, and and Randy, our friend Randy Barnett, uh, who's a professor at, uh, at uh, George Mason Law School, um, said, re- looking at that and sort of the conversation about originalism and everything was like uh, the old story about the, the Russian Jew reading the protocols of the elders of Zion. And somebody says, why, why are you reading that? And he's like, I, I love it. It makes me feel so powerful. <laughs> Apparently we run everything. So, um, so, you know, this had a kind of weird, uh, counter Sheldon Whitehouse's, you know, portrait of the tentacles of conservative, of, of conservative legal theorists, you know, going everywhere. And we have to- Legal theorists who, like, you know, who basically are sort of sitting, you know, teaching class at law schools. This is very exciting.
2: And we, we do- and I, sorry, I do- have... Advertisers. Exactly. People who advertise
1: I... on your favorite podcast are, this is a conspiracy hidden in plain sight. But
2: I have to to say, I have to give a shout out to Ted Cruz, who absolutely demolished the dark money side of that argument by just listing how much dark money has been fed into Democratic coffers, Um, because that that was kind of a it was sort of a masterclass on how to just point by point. Good on him and his staff for compiling it. Um, Just showing that, that again, to the hypocrisy point that this is a this is something that they have,
0: have little standing to critique. So guys, let's uh, let's pull back for a minute and uh, let me talk to you about something that is um, uh, an exciting... Uh, I think this is the second time that this advertiser has appeared on our podcast, and that is fastgrowingtrees.com. Because Noah, you live out in the country and I don't. So uh, when is the perfect time to plant trees and shrubs? Big box store experts will tell you anytime or I'm um, great question, but the best time to plant... I'm telling you now because you, this is your time, is actually fall, which means now is the time to go to fastgrowingtrees.com. Skip the big box stores and head to fastgrowingtrees.com, the world's largest online nursery, because there's no more waiting in lines, messy cars, digging through a lackluster selection. Just go to fastgrowingtrees.com and choose from thousands of varieties of trees, shrubs, and plants. Expertly curated to thrive in your area and delivered to your door in one or two days. Whether you're looking for shade, privacy, fruit trees, or just added color for your yard, every plant is shipped with a well-developed root system, ready to explode with new growth come spring. There's a better way to buy trees and shrub and plants for your home yard. Fastgrowingtrees.com. Fall is planting season. Noah Rothman. Don't let anybody tell you different. So join over 1 million satisfied gardeners at Fastgrowingtrees.com. Plus, the 30-day Alive and Thrive Guarantee means your plants will arrive happy, healthy, and ready for planting. So now through November 15th, go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary for 10% off. That's 10% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary, fastgrowingtrees.com slash commentary. And we thank them for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Can we talk about Nancy Pelosi's meltdown? Can we talk about Nancy Pelosi and Wolf Blitzer and her meltdown? Yes, please. <laughs> okay. So Wolf Blitzer asked her very plainly why uh, she was not negotiating more uh, more readily uh, on the coronavirus uh, stimulus. Uh, that clearly the White House uh, was uh, the White House or Steve Mnuchin was ready to deal. That she was really the roadblock here. Um, and she got incredibly testy and said that he was spewing Republican talking points and then demanded to know what she ever did to ha- what he ever did to help suffering people on the street whom she feeds, evidently because I don't know if you know this, but the federal budget uh, is hers to hand out like like she's throwing coins into a Salvation Army bucket. Um, it was kind of a startling. Display uh, and under other circumstances, uh, I would say could have been career ending. I mean, once again, not to play the if the, a Republican did something, anything remotely similar to this, but uh, to go on TV, to have a uh, friendly anchor say, Why aren't you doing this? and not to have a ready answer and to get angry because uh, her naked political and uh, partisan decision to delay any coronavirus spending uh, or relief until after the election so that Trump will get no credit for it is just, you know, without it's, it's, it's naked and raw and entirely without uh, you, you can't uh, sugarcoat
3: it. It's also another example to add to the countless ones we already have of how Trump's opponents and critics, um, devolve into um mirror images of Trump right i mean this is a very trumpian response to to a reasonable question to to lash out at the at the media source as um uh partisan and untrustworthy and underhanded
1: yeah you guys are being too kind uh to her honestly uh, she, she was pressed on this covid relief which her her caucus has been balking at and blitzer was talking you know about uh, invoking democratic talking points about how people are in need and they're, they're hungry. They can't put food on their table. And she goes, we represent them. We represent them. And he says, well, that's great. He's trying to sign off throughout all this and he can't get, he can't sign off because she won't let him go away. And he goes, okay, well, let, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And she says, it's nowhere near perfect, but thank you for your sensitivity to our constituents needs very sarcastically. And he goes, I am sensitive because I see them on the street begging for money. Have you fed them? We feed them. Have you fed them? Yeah, I mean, it went if, on for a really long time, and it was uncomfortable. And okay. by the way, this is all reflective, and I can't cite the poll, unfortunately. But I saw a recent poll about who you blame more for COVID relief's not, you know, not getting through Congress, Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi. Donald Trump. I don't know why it should be Mitch McConnell. It's a, the more, uh, you know, diametric opposition there. But anyway, between uh, Pelosi and, and Trump, and it was forty Trump, forty-three Pelosi. I wish I could cite the poll. I know it was recent. Um, But that reflects a a level of insecurity that is entirely deserved. um, But also that she let it just spill out into the streets there is very impolitic.
2: Well, she she must be. I mean, look, if Wolf Blitzer is bludgeoning you on television with the phrase with phrases about bread lines and your response is to say it's fine. She actually went worse than saying we feed them. She said we know them we know them. It was so strangely entitled. It really, I, I actually got some Marie Antoinette vibes from her at that moment. It's like, we know them, we feed them. I mean, it, you know, it's fine. It's all fine. But she also went to the values point. She said, they don't share our values as if this is a moral, she, she wanted to recast the extremely practical discussion in moral terms. Like, they don't share our values, so we're not going to feed the American people. We will feed them. We do that. But we're not going to do it now because I have a disagreement with the Trump administration's values. That's not going to play for people who need a check to put food on the table. Um, and, and the fact that Wolf Blitzer was was being the tough guy here. And as Noah said, it was extremely painful to watch. It was a lot of secondhand embarrassment going on as a viewer. Um, she's she's lost it. And I, I will, to to your point, John, I actually think she was quite deft at handling Trump at the very beginning of his term, of his term, because she knew how to enrage him and still seem cool. That's why she got all those, you know, slay queen uh, uh, praises on social yeah, media. But she, she,
0: but, she, but she wasn't the Speaker of the House. Right. So now she's so she now, was in an entirely different position right. because she was powerless right. as the, as the minority in the House is. And so she was only the opposition. Right. Beginning in 2018, at the end of 2018, she becomes Speaker of the House again. And, um and what has her speakership been what what was the dominating issue of her speakership impeachment impeachment
2: well and just uh, rokana is the one she's annoyed with and rokana represents the squad type interest right this is the very progressive uh side of the Democratic party which ladies and gentlemen I mean this is the next four years if Biden gets elected there these battles have been brewing and she's tried to keep a lid on them but the, the lid is off I think
0: I mean, what's interesting is that you know, once again, you see the unforced error that Trump made last week by announcing that he was ending the coronavirus, uh, you know, to ending the negotiations because uh, Pelosi would never agree to them. Oddly enough, he's correct, uh, but by but by saying I'm the alpha male, I'm going to end this instead of instead of her. He really, he 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 let go. You know, he basically took his foot off. It's not took us, took, I, I was about to use a brake accelerator uh, <laughs> metaphor, which is obviously terrible. I mean he he released the pressure on her for you know four or five days and then I thought you were gonna say release the out. Kraken
2: oh,
0: well. <laughs> but, no he, obviously, he didn't release the Kraken. Releasing the Kraken would be come here and we will sit down and in three hours, you and me and Mitch and we will have a deal that's how you don't release the crack and now he didn't want to do that to McConnell apparently McConnell and the Republicans in the Senate in a very interesting playing in a very interesting game because the uh, senators who are not up for re-election in 2020 and who do not have tough races in 2020 and who remember how uh, Republicans felt pressured to sign on to Tarp and Talf in 2008 and how bad that was in the party's odor almost immediately after a lot of them signed it, the people who want to go on and, and like run for president in 2024 don't want to agree to any further spending. And McConnell uh, is trying to sort of accommodate them. And oddly enough, therefore Pelosi's recalcitrance helps him. It hurts Trump and it hurts everybody in the country who needs that relief, which is, Serious. I want to remind people who are sort of against that relief that the only reason that that relief is needed is because of governmental actions to shut to to affirmatively play a role in shutting the economy down. I mean, a really Uh, competent political operation
1: could make hay of this, but because it pulls back the curtain on a lot of what the truth is around these phase four COVID negotiations, which is it's the disparate interests inside the Democratic caucus in the House. That had been the obstacle to this thing and why it was so blindingly stupid for Donald Trump to say I'm walking away from the table, beside the fact that he wasn't walking away from the table. It's just like his his weird idea of what effective negotiating tactics are, but that it was always the recalcitrance among Democrats towards a, a package um, and not just and, or even piecemeal. I mean, piecemeal was something I think that Republicans bulked at briefly, but even the an airline bailout. bailout which is now on the table and has been like something that has a fire lit under it after these layoffs at United airlines. Um, it's, it was always the democratic Party's like la- between the, the moderates and the progressives never could get, get together on a particular issue. And Nancy Pelosi can't wrangle them. She, she's no longer the manager she was in 2010. And that well, frustration that. was evident in this interview and a competent Republican operation could say, listen, this is it. This is the whole, the whole thing here, guys. It's right in front of your face. They can't negotiate. They can't negotiate in good faith because they can't get on the same page.
0: So we are we we what we could see in the wake of a Biden victory is Biden calling some you know meeting uh, you know second week of November and you know. St- directing everyone to come to the table and make a deal and then mysteriously magically a deal will be made and then they can claim going into 2021 that you know they this they've delivered they just they started by delivering which is some weird analog to Trump you know and Caterpillar right you remember that Trump during the uh, during the uh, transition, uh, you know, went and uh, got Caterpillar to do whatever he could do. And then he's like, you see, I'm not even president yet, and I'm making America great again. Um, I got
1: Indiana, the governor of which was Mike Pence, yes. to provide tax relief,
0: targeted tax relief for uh, Caterpillar yeah. in Indiana. Right. Um, so, I mean, you could see that happening. And, I, I, you know, you can claim that maybe the elections in you know, uh, two weeks and five days. So, you know, people have waited this long. They can wait, you know, they can wait a little longer. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm struck by, pardon my New York centrism again, uh, this story about one of my favorite, one of the most wonderful places in New York, the, uh, the, the Oyster Bar in Grand Central Station reopened. It's a, it's a glorious old, mid-century american restaurant in the basement of the of the of grand central station huge it's enormous um, under these guastavino ceilings and it's an amazing place and they reopened but they could only reopen with 25% capacity and they spent 4 or 5 days reopened and they closed again because there is no way for them to operate on 25% capacity the physical footprint is too big they need too large a staff they cannot make the kind of money and nobody is coming through grand central station since, since there's 12% population in the business district of New York uh, during this period. And so that as a, in small bore is to me sort of like a representative story of why this relief bill needs to happen. Um, And the fact that apparently the white, the Trump administration and the, and, and Pelosi are Two hundred million dollars apart. That the White House's number is up to one point eight trillion, and Pelosi's number is a two trillion, and she will not make a deal. is pretty staggering and shocking. And maybe she'll be punished, and maybe she won't. By I don't know how she's punished exactly. Um, although I, I I do wonder whether she survives uh, as speaker after this. After November, why would you want her?
1: What, well, what's what, the? It's going to be a hard argument against her if the if the dominoes fall as we expect they will, which will be an expanded Democratic House majority. They're expecting up to I know ten seats, ten new seats. Well, she doesn't get. Why,
0: why would she get any credit for that?
1: I mean, why would she get blamed for it?
0: She wouldn't get blamed for it, but you could say you've been great. You've been a transitional figure. It's really wonderful. Uh, but you know, uh, we really need new blood here. And that blood, new blood, by the way, can't be Steny Hoyer, was also 278 years old. Who the young ones want to put them world. on
2: the ice flow and let they, they you know? Well, that was right. always
3: that was always the implicit deal with with right. this um, speakership, right? She was supposed to be sort of one and done.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Well, she never said it, and not she explicitly. Probably
0: doesn't, you know. She probably doesn't mean it, and. Uh, right. Um, The funny thing about the squad is that none of them seems to have any organizational ambitions, right? They're all PR people. Like this job, doing this stuff, being speaker or or majority leader or however we want to slice it, these are hard, difficult, boring, technical jobs where you have to stay up many late hours and like figure out where you're going to go first and who's going to vote this and how organizationally this is going to work and make lists and do whipping and all of that. And they just want to stand there and blather and go on Instagram and make makeup videos. They don't, they don't want to do that work. So the question is who will be their champion uh, and you know, who might work to coo her out with their support. uh, I mean, honestly, I I think that
1: that gives short shrift to the moderate wing of the party which is actually a very strong block and has been very effective at uh, at, at wielding its influence and um, blocking initiatives that would otherwise have sailed through with the support of the progressive wing. And to the extent that we've seen any organizational ambition, as you say, it has been from the moderate wing, from people like uh, Tim Ryan. Tim Ryan,
0: I believe is his name? Tim Ryan, yeah, Tim Ryan.
1: Yeah. Um, So those are the people who understand, A, how the institution works, and B, want to make it work, um, under their under their leadership,
0: right. But uh, anyway, as we as we think about it, these are sort of interesting political questions that obviously will be tabled um, until November third, and that's another reason why Pelosi can get away with this, and also why Amy Coney Barrett's nomination can't really penetrate to the highest reaches because we really are now in the final stretch. The question is Trump versus Biden. It's only Trump versus Biden. And it's all this question now about whether Trump can get anything going to reverse what appears to be unstoppable momentum or entropy or whatever you want to call it that is going to serve sort of like Biden just sort of greasing the skids on his way to victory on Election Day. And that's the only thing that's of any interest, really, any real political interest. Uh, but saying, you know won't you like me? I saved your damn neighborhoods. What What did he do? Honestly, what did Trump do to save suburban neighborhoods? I have no idea what he did to save suburban neighborhoods. None. I mean, I don't see he hurt suburban neighborhoods, but I don't see that he helped suburban neighborhoods either. And what's more, it's not for presidents to help or hurt suburban neighborhoods. That's a ridiculous thing both to propose and to demand credit for.
2: But he, he's, I think he's annoyed that he didn't get any, and we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, right, as he was doing it, he didn't get any bounce, he didn't get any positive uh, response from showing up in, in uh, you know, suburban Wisconsin, suburban Minnesota, all these little places that we're seeing uh, eruptions of violence and rioting and whatnot uh, he didn't see any benefit from doing that, right? He showed up, he was like, it was his law and order couple of weeks of being Mr. Law and Order and it didn't play well with suburban women. There's just something about Trump that that message was not gonna be heard even though if you look at the issue, it is of, a, it is of concern to those women, but they don't think he, that he is just not the person to solve that problem for them.
0: It's not just that, saying suburban women like, who set, stands there and says, as a suburban woman, I'm telling you, a spurned man. <laughs> He's like no, a spurned. But you, man. <laughs> but you don't. People don't think of themselves right. that way. Right. They're not. I am a. I am a type in a political map <laughs> where they say, you know, the real people who are going to decide this election are suburban women. It's not because they're women and they live in a suburb. It is because they have a series of interlocking characteristics that combine. To have the term suburban women be a convenient, um, you know, handle, like soccer moms were, or, uh, you know, there were various, there have been various terms, Reagan Democrats, like, these are terms of political art. They do not define any person. And by invoking them, you aren't speaking to anybody but a political consultant, No, so
2: the good candidate tells an individual story about someone whose life is a mirror of that demographic, right? You talk about, you know, uh, Mary Jones, who lives in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and who had X, Y, and Z happen to her. And then we did this for, like, that's how you get to that demographic. He's just not that deaf to retail politician.
0: He's a performer. It's a different thing. And, you know, part of that whole thing, this suburban thing, what was that it's some, Catskill's Tumbling. It's like him saying, I don't even know how to take this seriously enough. Won't you like me? I saved your damn neighborhoods. Please like me. It's like him walking around saying, I'm so cured that I will make out with anybody. I mean, this is the way he taught, you know, it really is like, uh, reminds me a little of the Saturday Night Live sketch in 1988 with John Lovitz playing Mike Dukakis the weekend before the election where he's like, well, I'm going to lose. So let's do this this fun way. It's Dukakis after dark <laughs> based on Playboy after dark, which was a TV show with Hugh Hefner in the 60s. They of walking around. People are like sitting there drinking champagne and he's like, oh, hey, Willie Horton, how are you? You know, like that. I mean, it, Trump is sort of like, he's sort of like tumbling his way, To what appear, what may appear to be his inevitable end, and I'm not. He's acting like it. I'm not acting like it. He's acting like it. I would thoroughly enjoy
1: uh, Donald Trump in a smoking jacket.
0: I would love that. sitting,
1: Sitting down, crossing his legs at a grand piano.
0: Yeah, that would be. Don't joke. (laughs) That's a joke. That's a joke. It's
2: gonna bring <laughs> it back <laughs> the fireside chat, but it may happen.
0: <laughs> it may happen. I mean, it's sort of like it's not like he's Live. gonna, you know, he's gonna be, you know, like Nixon walking through the, you know, and and like having uh, yelling at the paintings of previous presidents, like you know Nixon in the final days. he'll 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 he'll, he'll play some other. He'll play some other, much more comic gambit, in my view. Anyway, with that, we will we will bring today's proceedings to a close. We will reassemble tomorrow. For Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the camel burning.